Friends, welcome to another episode. My name is Chris Rogers and I am your host. Today's episode is really exciting for me. We're going to have an interview with Jim Warner Wallace. Jim Warner Wallace was a cold case detective who American homicide detective and he came to faith having researched Christianity as if it was a cold case what evidence is there out there for Christianity and Jesus Christ now and my plan was always to make this a, a two-parter so part a and part b I can't cut it in half there is absolutely nowhere for me to cut this in half the entire thing is needed to be one interview so it's a long interview it was intended to be two parts but it's just so interesting that I just can't cut it up. So I'm going to jump straight in and let you listen to Jim. I will put links in the show notes for some of his teaching on the resurrection, on Christianity and on scripture, looking at these things from a cold case perspective. And I just think it's some of the best and interesting evidence out there way of looking at the evidence of Jesus uh, historically so you if you work with teenagers they may really love his videos on this stuff uh, partly because it's just so different coming from a homicide detective if you work with non-christians if you are debating Christianity with people or you have a partner who isn't a, a Christian it's just so good so I'll put links to all of that in the show, show notes, the cold case Christianity stuff that he has done. It's just spectacular. I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to jump in. And please, please enjoy uh, this uh, almost hour with Jim Warner Wallace, uh, author, speaker, and American homicide detective. Jim, welcome to Making Disciples. It's so, so good to have you with me today. Well, I'm just glad to be can connect from across the globe, so I'm happy to be here. It's great. And I love you've got a blue background. I've got a red background. It's a little bit like yes. the Matrix, blue pill, red pill. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Jim, I am so pleased to have you on the podcast. The UK term will be chuffed, so chuffed to really? have oh, you with very me. Cool. Why? Uh, I absolutely love cold cases. Netflix, for me, uh, all it gives me is cold cases that get solved. And I I absolutely love a good cold case over nine episodes or something. And a friend of mine, just over a year and a half ago, introduced me to your cold case Christianity, cold case resurrection. And I must have recommended those YouTube videos to so many guys in the UK who are asking the same question, what is the evidence for Jesus Mm -hmm. Christ? Uh, Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for um, your story. So let's just jump straight in because you are a homicide detective, uh, cold cases. Uh, What is your little bit of your story of coming to faith? How has your detective side led you to Jesus? Well, I just wasn't raised in a Christian environment, so I didn't know another way to to kind of assess the claims. You know, like so so, I just there was no there was no kind of cultural uh, understanding for me of what it was to be a person of faith. That 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 whole notion seemed foreign to me, and I wasn't raised around Christians. I'm here in Los Angeles County, California, 
Um, and it's, we are in this, I guess, technically in the Southern part of, of our country, but it doesn't feel this way. It feels very urban. It feels very secular. It felt that way for me growing up. Um, but uh, my wife was interested in kind of thinking about how we might raise our kids. Do we raise them with an overarching kind of transcendent worldview? If, and I was willing to go to church with her if she wants to go. Uh, I didn't have to believe it was true in order to, to, to serve her well. And so, so I went, uh, ultimately she took me a few years before I would kind of be you know, resisted, but I went and the pastor in that first session, uh, made a point of saying that Jesus was super smart. Now I wasn't interested in anything else. I just kind of thought, well, if, if this Christian Bible has got the proverbial statements of the wise guy, I'm willing to buy it. And I bought a pew Bible, didn't spend a lot of money on it. Um, and I just started reading through it to see what was so smart about Jesus. Um, as I started to do that, I thought, well, you know, these claims made by these authors, they seem to want me to believe that this stuff actually happened in a certain sequential order. In other words, they're saying that they saw this stuff. And that to me is, that, that's my work, right? Is that you, you have a claim about something or people said they saw something and then you have to kind of figure out, well, is that actually true? Did they really see this? And so there's a, a certain set of principles that you you apply to see if someone's a reliable eyewitness. That's that's really how I became a Christian, by applying those principles, um, those investigative principles to the gospel claims. And now that was a process for me of about, you know, probably the better part of a year, um, just trying to figure out what could I trust? What can I not trust? Why should I trust this? What does this mean? What are the implications if this is true? These kinds of things take time, I think, if you're really thoughtful about it. And I just didn't, I, can, I think my, my innate hesitancy, the fact that I wasn't raised around any of this, the fact that I felt like I was dropping in out of the sky on the thing called the church, mm. that maybe helped me to take my time and really kind of test the, the claims. And that's really why I ended up where I did, which is now writing books about why I think Christianity is true. Yeah, I, I love that. And I love how you approached it uh, from the world that you were in. You didn't say, right, I'm going to understand the world of religion or the world of Christianity. I'm, I'm approaching this as a detective and I'm going to go on a detective story. Um, and I suppose the detective piece is, you know, you, you are exploring Jesus, who is Jesus. But the evidence that you had, the Bible you first got to get over that hurdle that is the evidence in the Bible reliable. How right. did you approach the Bible to convince yourself that that evidence was even worth looking at? Uh, you know, if Christianity is a cold case, that that is the evidence, you know, some of the evidence at least. How did you convince yourself that that is credible evidence? Well, and you know, I was focused so, fo I'll just be honest, I was really focused on Jesus of Nazareth. So I was not interested in the church, uh, was not interested in the history of the church or the culture of the church. I was just interested is these folks dropped their lives and followed Jesus based on something they said they saw. I just wanted to know, should I drop everything in my life and do the same thing? Should I trust what it is they said they saw? And, and when witnesses are being tested in criminal trials here in, in the United States, uh, and we have jury instructions in each state, they're very much the same. <clears throat> and they're just to help jurors assess, well, how do I know this guy's reliable? There's only two forms of evidence in any criminal trial. There's direct evidence. Those are eyewitness accounts. And there's indirect evidence, which is everything else. If you've got DNA, that's, that falls in the indirect evidence category. 
eyewitnesses alone account for everything we call direct evidence. And there's no categories, hard evidence, you know, there's not, it's not a category. So I knew there'll be two types of evidence I would have to trust or have to learn to, to evaluate when it came to Christianity, the direct evidence of the eyewitness accounts and the indirect evidence. And, and so the, for me, it was about assessing the direct evidence of these accounts. And there's four ways you assess this direct evidence in criminal trials. One, was the person really there to see what he said he saw? So that came down to how early are these accounts written? Two, can they be corroborated in some way? They don't have to be completely corroborated. I don't have a video for every crime I've ever investigated, but I might have some touch point piece of corroboration that will help me to corroborate the eyewitnesses account. Three, um, have they changed their story? Have they been honest and accurate over time? Or do they kind of like change their story as <laughs> push and pull? And then four, do they possess a bias that would cause them to lie to me? Well, this is what we ask jurors to assess when they're listening to witnesses on the stand. And so for me, this became the thing that I wanted to be able to assess to see if this was true about Jesus. Now, now look, you can take that approach and you can assess any claim of antiquity. It doesn't have to be the gospel claims alone. You could assess, I'll be, at the same time I was doing this, I had some family members, most of them are all atheists, okay? But I do have a few that were raised LDS. And the question I had was, like, why do you believe that Mormonism is true? Well, they, they, they believe that the testimony of Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. Well, the great thing about this process is it not only will lead you to what's true, it'll protect you from what's false. So that was the approach I took when I was assessing the gospel accounts, you know, assessing them under those, that four-part template that you use to assess every eyewitness. Yeah. So deemed the New Testament as credible evidence. Is there any evidence outside of, or did you find any evidence outside of those Gospels and outside of the uh, New Testament that for you was interesting evidence that had to be taken into account, that for you just proved you know, the existence or the life of Jesus as a historical figure? Yeah, well, this is one of the things I, so when I examined all of the claims of the Gospels, um, and looked at what's in the New Testament and tested the New Testament. That, that work I did is described in a book called Cold Case Christianity, like you mentioned. But, but there's, I did a couple of things. At the same time, I had to shake myself of my presuppositional bias against God's existence altogether, because that was my, my bias was that, hey, that science explains everything. There's no reason to jump to supernatural beings to explain what ultimately science was going to tell us, is yeah. going to explain for us. I, I had a presuppositional bias against anything supernatural, but I needed to examine that bias to see if it was well-grounded evidentially. And that I did in a book called God's Crime Scene. Do we, do we have good reasons? So I'm doing both of these things simultaneously back, you know, 20 some odd years ago, as I'm looking at 35 years of age, I'm working as a detective and I'm just examining these, this evidence. But the other thing I did was to say, well, look, it's not just what the eyewitnesses say. In criminal cases, I have had several where there is no evidence, physical evidence, because it was never reported as a homicide to begin with. In other words, uh, what they call these no-body murders or no-body missings. And, and these are cases where, you know, a guy kills his business partner or he kills his wife. And then he says, well, we had an argument last night. You know, she, she left and she never came back. I don't know where she is. You know, and she just never. And so we take it as a missing persons case. Nobody even photographs the scene. He's got tons of time to clean it up. 
destroy everything. He's destroyed the body somehow in an effective way. And 20 years later, we've got nothing, no evidence, no body, no photographs of any crime scene, not a single piece of evidence booked into the property room. How do you make that case? Well, what I tell jurors is that on the day she went missing, if this is a murder, it's as if a bomb is detonated, something explosive happened, but all bombs are preceded by a fuse that burns up to the detonation of the bomb. And then following the detonation, there's debris everywhere. So we can tell you what happened on the day of the detonation by simply examining the fuse and the fallout in the timeline. This will point to our suspect. Well, I took the same approach with Jesus. If I didn't even have any data from the New Testament, Let's imagine a scenario in which every New Testament is completely destroyed. Well, you'd still be stuck with the fuse and the fallout of whatever it is that occurred in the first century. So, so I just examined, and this is what the book Person of Interest is. It's really just an effort to examine just the opposite of what Cold Case examines. It's, it's the stuff that's outside the New Testament. Could you make a case for Jesus of Nazareth based purely on the fuse and fallout of history? Could you make a case for Jesus and his deity from the impact alone that he's had on human history. And I think for a lot of us, we're just not aware of the impact that Jesus had. Maybe, maybe we, uh, you know, here, I, I certainly didn't learn it in school and I seem to live in a place that seemed relatively godless and happy. In other words, Southern California seemed like a great place to grow up for me. And I didn't have any need and didn't see any connectivity between what I was experiencing in Southern California and the impact of Jesus of Nazareth. So that's what I'm trying to, to examine in this book. And this is what I love. So uh, if we talk about uh, the, your book, Person of Interest, you you do talk about uh, the fuse and the fallout. And um, I'd first heard that phrase while watching some Netflix series somewhere. Really? So, then, so, you heard, so you did hear it on an investigation? Yeah. I've heard about I thought the, that I, I have never heard anybody else talk about the way we've used it in ours. But that's good to good to know that other people are using the same approach. When I then um, read this in your book, I'm like I'm I'm all over it. I'm excited because you're you're talking the language of what excites me at ten o'clock at night when I'm watching Netflix. So can we talk about this first? You know, I'd love you just to explore with us the, the fuse and the fallout. So fuse first, uh, it's the build up to the bomb going off. Yes. What what is the fuse? If we were to look at the life and person of Jesus Christ, what is the fuse that leads up to uh, him uh, and his life? So the question is, what are the aspects of human history that precede the first century that really have an impact on what happens in the first century? And there are a couple of things you could look at, right? They're separate. No one related specifically to Jesus, but others just related to all of culture in the first century. So for example, it's the rise and fall of empires leading up to the first century is important because it sets the stage in a way that um, is remarkable. Um, so for example, if something was to happen of importance in the first century, how would we ever know about it? Well, it turns out that one of the reasons why we know about what happened in the first century is because cultures were rising and falling, empires were rising and falling, and certain kinds of technology were making the transformation, the uh, transportation of information that how we communicate possible. So for example, uh, had Jesus arrived a, a couple thousand years earlier, the, the level of communication would have been much more primitive. You know, remember if you think about the first ways of communicating on a written form were what were called pictographs. And pictographs and cuneiforms, the earliest forms of, of writing, 
for the most part, they were reserved for the surfaces that they had available to them, which were clay or stone or wood. These things don't last. They don't, they last, but they don't travel well. Uh, clay does have a tendency to break up. And the pictograph forms are so primitive that if you were trying to communicate, say, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, good luck doing the complexity of the sermon with just pictographs. But by the time alphabets and the Persian alphabet, the Phoenician alphabet, and ultimately the Etruscan alphabet emerges, well, that's adopted by Rome. And that alphabet ends up becoming very widely uh, used because the Roman Empire was so large and so powerful. So you now have the Etruscan alphabet, the Koine Greek spoken language, and papyrus, which means whatever you do write, it can travel. And uh, interestingly, the Roman Empire became so powerful that there's a 200-year period of peace called the Pax Romana in which um, infrastructure now can be uh, enlarged because you're not spending money on war. You have a safe travel and you now have roads emerging, tunnels and bridges at a level, unprecedented level. As a matter of fact, some of these roads, uh, I was just reading in Revelation and the, the churches that, that John uh, talks about in the first chapters of Revelation. Well, a couple of these churches uh, received the gospel from Paul on his missionary journeys on roads that were unavailable just 150 years prior because they hadn't yet been constructed by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire sets the stage for the mass communication of something, anything that could have happened in the first century. It just so happens Jesus appears right at the point at which the story, even the Silk Road from China, you know that expression, all roads lead to Rome? Yeah. Pretty much this was the case. The Persian roads, which were pretty well developed, the Persian postal service, pretty well developed. Rome takes everything to the next level. So you have a, a moment, a window of opportunity during the Pax Romana in which ideas can travel like never before. And, and you know, one of the things Chris has said to me sometimes is, well, wouldn't it have been a wiser for, for Jesus to arrive now Right, we've got the internet. We can do this kind of thing. Well, the reality of it is, if you look at the internet today, what I'm seeing is more tribal division mm. than ever before. And I don't even know if we're even open to each other's ideas like we would have been in in generations past. I kind of think, in some ways, if 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 you get a message and you look at where who's it coming from, oh, I don't like that guy. I don't like that source. I don't like that side of the political aisle. You just shut it down. And also, I think we're in a, a world of computer graphics that make almost, if you're watching the, the Marvel superhero movies, it seems like I can, I don't trust anything I see anymore. I think we can accomplish almost anything without um, it being true or real. And there's one more thing that I discovered working on this book. Uh, if people who are watching this or listening to this in the future, may not download it and keep it on their hard drive forever. Mm. Most of our digital media, we, you know, if you have a video on YouTube and it gets 100,000 views, that doesn't mean 100,000 downloads. It means 100,000 views. Mm. Now, when it's written on paper or a book or papyrus, it has to occupy geographic space. So 100,000 copies of something that is physical, like a papyrus or a book, means it's located in 100,000 locations on planet Earth, and it's much more difficult to destroy. I can't just flip a, a server off, and, and well, I remember seeing that, but I don't have a copy of it. Yeah. Well, if you saw it, you have a copy probably if it was in the first century. And that ability to get a physical uh, um, uh, document uh, across the nation, across the known world, is one of the things that accounts for the explosive growth of Christianity early. 
So that was just one aspect of the fuse that led up to the appearance of Jesus. Of course, you know, there's prophetic fuses, the prophecies of the Old Testament. There are spiritual fuses, the kind of imagination of humans who are looking at commonalities, common expectations of deity that kind of culminate in the first century. But there are just, this is the fuses you'd be looking at to see why it is that there's a small opportunity in the first century for something explosive to happen. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'd love to, you've just touched on something that I'd love to ask you just around other deities, because there are there were many, many deities who had all many gifts and abilities. Jesus stands out unique. Um, what do we do about the fact that there are so many other people? Uh, possible deities out there that are fighting for or clambering for the same space that Jesus kind of holds. Uh, yeah. How do you how do you kind of map um, Jesus against them and them against Jesus? Well, I think this is still happening today. Today, there are many, even amongst people who are who the vast, vast majority of humans on planet Earth, over 80 percent believe in some kind of higher power. They may not even associate themselves with any known world religion, but in their minds, they've kind of created in their minds that there is a God. I think there is a God, a higher power, and you've got it. You've given it attributes, probably, even though you may not have read those attributes on any holy scripture. You may just have assigned these attributes because you've been thinking about God and you have a sense of who he is. Well, this is happening in antiquity as well. And if you read through the ancient myths, you will see that I discovered, and I have brought a chapter about this, about 15 common uh, expectations expectations that the ancients had, I think this is also true of moderns, have of deity. If there is a God, for example, I'm guessing he would have supernatural power. Well, that's the one common attribute of all notions of deity, that if there's a supernatural being, he would have supernatural power. Also, you'll see one of the more common uh, expectations is that this God would probably, if he enters into the world, enter into the world in a supernatural way. And that's not uncommon. Now, the, the way that the gods enter is different, but the idea that they would enter super, they maybe could defeat death. In other words, they have all of the common expectations you would have of a god. Mm. Well, you see this over and over again. That's why sometimes people will say, well, Jesus is just a copycat savior. He's like some of the other. Well, yeah, no kidding. All the gods are like each other because our expectations are manifest in our stories mm. about God. Now, what's interesting is no ancient mythology I can find possesses more than about six to 10 of the 15 common attributes until you get to an historical figure known as Jesus of Nazareth. The one historical figure that possesses all 15 attributes, all 15 of our common expectations. Now it turns out that those, those, those deities are not worshiped forever. <laughs> There's a window of opportunity there as cultures rise and fall and the worship of deities rises and fall. But it turns out the vast majority of them are still in place being worshiped in the first century. When Jesus can come and match the expectations that the ancients had so that every group can say, can find something in Jesus, they go, wow, that, that does sound like God. So much so that Paul can say I'm on Mars Hill, you people are very religious. Now he's in the Roman pantheon of gods and he's got every, you know, Rome basically adopted everyone's gods. And, and as long as you worship the Roman gods, you could keep yours. And so you have a huge collection of mythologies that are active at this period of time. And Paul says, you know what, you've even got a tomb to the unknown God. But I'm here to tell you that, that he even says that, that some of these gods are, are coming out of the, off the tongue, off the lips of their poets. He even cites uh, you know, poetry. 
And, and he says, you know, but I'm here to tell you that we saw God. We, we actually have a, you might have stories from the minds of your poets, but we have an observation about God that came. So Lewis puts it this way, that the ancient mythologies, when he uses the word myth, he means a story about deity, not a falsehood. So he says the myths of antiquity are simply the, the ideas about God from the mind of humans and poets, whereas Jesus is the myth that comes from the mind of God established in what we call real things. So everyone's got an idea about God, but, the, but God is, has the only true idea about God, right? He's God. And so it turns out that Jesus is that person who shows up and matches the expectations. I never saw the similarities between ancient mythologies and the person of Jesus as a liability. I, instead, I saw them as evidence for the deity of, of Jesus because he happens to be the one historical figure that possesses all the attributes the ancients and the moderns expect of God. That's fantastic. So that's that's us talking about the build-up to yeah. Christ. What about the fallout? What do we see? What is the impact that we see outside of Scripture that is uh, helpful for us as we look at this case? Well, I'm looking at your background, right? And I'm thinking to myself, you're clearly a creative person who's interested in creative things. And you've got lots of iconic symbols in the background that come from, I see R2-D2, I'm standing there in the back. So, I mean, it turns out that, that no one has impacted creative arts, mm -hmm. literature, art, and music, like Jesus of Nazareth as an inspirational figure. As a matter of fact, it's not just a Western phenomenon. It's a global phenomenon. Of course, everything that happens in the West now, based on these silly things, you know, these smartphones we have, ends up being exported to the entire world. But what's interesting is if you look at the history of music, the history of art, you will find that no figure in all of the historical figures has been so inspiring to artists in the history of art, for example. Now, my background before I became a detective, I have a master, uh, bachelor's degree in design and a master's degree in architecture. Now, this was my life before becoming a detective. I was in the arts. I love the arts. Now, I'll tell you, if you study art history, you'll discover that every uh, epic period of art history and the genres that emerge from those periods, from antiquity all the way through to popism, Dadaism, you know, Impressionism, whatever, surrealism, whatever you want, mm. you will find that if you were to search for the top three artists in that historic genre, Look at their catalog. Mm. All of them include an image of some sort of Jesus of Nazareth. This cannot be said of any other historical figure. Mm. His influence on the arts, and also he's a malleable figure in the arts, because unlike, for example, if you look at images of Buddha as they have been painted or chiseled or whatever over time, you'll see that for the most part, Buddha always looks like Buddha. But Jesus, depending on the culture in which he's depicted, often looks like the people group of who, who are depicting him. Yeah. There's a sense in which Jesus is the savior of all of us. And therefore, we feel have the freedom, the creative freedom to depict him in the artistic styles of our region and mm -hmm. in the ethnic manner of our region, who we are as a people group. And so that's why you see so much he, he we want to conform to that genre mm. in order to uh, paint, chisel, uh, sculpt, etch, draw Jesus. We actually can reinterpret him through our own creative lens. And that's why I think he serves to be a, a creative force in the arts. Now, the, the fact that no one's been written about more 
than Jesus of Nazareth. It's not even close in terms of historical figures. No one has been painted more. You can reconstruct the entire story of Jesus just from non-Christian literature in the first 300 years. You can reconstruct the entire story of Jesus just from the music of the, of the hymns sung. If you lost all of the New Testament, you'd still be stuck with Jesus from the art. You can reconstruct every episode of the Gospels in the art that's been crafted about Jesus before the Middle Ages. That is the impact of Jesus. And it's not just that he has huge impact. It's mm -hmm. that if you lost the New Testament, you could still reconstruct his story from these areas of impact in the arts. Now, I'm not even talking about education, mm -hmm. science, world religions. It's, you can also find Jesus there and reconstruct his story there. But just from a creative aspect, as a creative person myself, mm -hmm. I'm just so inspired by the fact that so many other artists, musicians, and writers there's even a genre of writer of, uh, of of character development in literature called Christ figures, where uh, where people in the Star Wars series have been crafted after the overarching narrative of Jesus of Nazareth. Many Marvel characters, uh, Neo coming up in the new Matrix uh, movie. These are all you know the one Neo kind of. So the idea here is that that the story of Jesus is either been consciously or unconsciously borrowed thousands of times. I have a list in the book of all the Christ figures in, in, in fiction. And that's the kind of impact that you cannot say about any other historical figure. And so this is one of the things that makes that Jesus, and again, he's having the kind of impact on human culture that you would, you only got a few choices. You remember the old C.S. Lewis trilemma? It was liar, lunatic, or Lord. That's who Jesus has to be. Well, there's a kind of a new one that I'm trying to develop here by looking at, I think there's newer questions that we have in this culture today. He's either a fictional character a copycat yeah. savior, or he's just a regular guy in the first century who yeah. cares, or he is God of the universe. Now, given those three options, can you think of any other historical figure in the history of historical figures who's ever had this kind of impact on human history, art, literature, music, education, science, world religions, knock yourself out. I'll wait. You're not going to find anybody. But and so it's reasonable to infer that he's something more than a fictional character. But you also won't find another mortal living human being in the history of mortal living human beings who's had this kind of impact on history. And that's why I think it's reasonable to infer he's something more than that. Now, if of the three options, the kind of impact that Jesus had seems like it matches the third option best. If he's the God of the universe who steps into his creation, you would expect him to have an impact on every aspect of his creation. And that is what Jesus has. So I think that's where uh, the, the evidence for from history, from the fuse and the fallout, can help us make a case for both the historicity and the deity of Jesus. Mm. So you talked about the arts and culture. You've talked about history. You talk about science, uh, because what happens so often is we pitch faith and science against each other. But actually, when we look at history, uh, it's not quite as black and white as that, is it? Uh, so talk to yeah. us about science. I, you know, what do we see of Christ in the sciences? Yeah, it's so interesting. There was a, a statement that was made by Catherine Farringer years ago that, you know, the Christians with the sciences would have been, you know, 1500 years further advanced, if not for the fact that Christians have held them back and even burned their best minds at the stake. Nothing could be further from the truth. To make that kind of a claim means you either got to be uh, um, intentionally lying or just ignorant of the impact of Christ followers on history. So what I did in the book, the book is very highly illustrated because I, I could do my own illustrations. So I wrote, drew over 400 illustrations in the book. And one of them is a simple chart that shows the progress of science historically over 4,000 years, starting at 4, 2000 BC to well, CE or BCE, whatever you want to call it, to 2000 AD or CE. 
And if you look at that history of, of science, you will see that the, the growth curve in the sciences begins right after the appearance of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, why is that the case? Is that a coincidence in history or is somehow the Christian worldview serving as a catalyst for the exploration of the sciences? And I, I make a case in the book for why I think it's the second. It turns out that if you look at the history of science, Christians, Christ followers have killed it. Now you might say, well, no one's a Christ follower today. Well, actually, I show in the book how many current living important scientists who are medal winners, award winners, are Christ followers. But it could be no denying that the people who established the, the scientific disciplines we are uh, exploring today, from modern biology, modern chemistry, modern astronomy, all the way to quantum mechanics and computer sciences, the, the vast majority, no one has established more scientific disciplines than Christ followers, mm. period. All the other groups combined will not match the impact of Christ followers in the sciences. And as a matter of fact, I have a list of all of the scientific disciplines established by Christ followers. It's, it's ridiculous. It's the only list I put in the book because I know these lists get too long, but I just wanted people to kind of flip through the pages and go, well, you got to be kidding me. Yes, that's the impact they have. As a matter of fact, there are more science fathers who are Christ followers than any other group combined. So if you look at the science fathers, the fathers of scientific disciplines, and you look at what they wrote about Jesus, because they wrote to each other, they wrote books, they wrote journals about Jesus, they were very devout Jesus followers, you can reconstruct the story of Jesus in more detail with more uh, uh, um, um, foundation, with larger amount of information from the science fathers than you can from the church fathers of the Antonicene period. That's a remarkable statement. Mm. So you'd have to destroy the entire history. The scientific revolution is so unbelievably dominated by Christ followers. And people will say that people will actually make excuses for it. They'll say, well, yeah, but you know, in Europe in the 16th and 17th century, everyone was a Christian, but that doesn't, yeah, you're right. I mean, not, not everyone, but it was dominated by a Christian worldview. But interestingly, there were more the the, the, the the amount of dirt on planet Earth outside of Europe was far more vast than the amount of dirt we call Europe. And, and there were more people living outside of Europe by far than there were living in Europe. But why is it the sciences don't emerge in the East? Why is it they emerge in Europe? Because and it's under a worldview called Christendom. Well, it turns out that worldview, and I'll give you like seven reasons why, that the worldview itself is what ignites the sciences. Now, we have to make a decision because there was actually a period of time called the Golden Age of Islam in which Muslims were also dominantly contributing to the sciences yeah. from the Middle Ages, uh, probably the 7th century, probably to the 13th century. I mean, amazing contributions, amazing. And then that lightning that switched uh, flipped. And there's been some speculations of why that would be the case. There's actually a book, I think, called The Closing of the Muslim Mind that tries to exploit. It's for largely theological reasons. In other words, you, you, their worldview allowed for the participation until they decided it didn't. Mm. Now, we have to make a decision as Christians. And, and I get it. We're in a world right now where everything, including faith, has been politicized. Science has been politicized. And we are polarized by politics. I think politics has kind of become the new overarching transcendent worldview most of us would rather explore. And we're all online, hammers looking for another nail uh, that holds a political view. Do not let politics ruin your faith or ruin the connection that's clearly between the Christian worldview and science. 
is that the, the earliest scientists believed they were exploring the natural realm and learning more about the God of the universe. Kepler said we were simply thinking God's thoughts after him. Mm. And we, kinda, we have to hold to that view and continue leading in the sciences. Yeah. As of right now, there are more Nobel Prize winners in the sciences that are Christians than all the other groups combined. Do not surrender our leadership in the sciences. We have a reason to continue to study the sciences because we are basically writing in information in the book of Revelation, a book of natural revelation, right? That, that natural revelation is something that we can still study. Special revelation is closed. It's, it's scripture is closed. But we can still learn about the nature of God uh, through our exploration of science. So essentially science is uh, uh, people who are wowed by the created order the work of the creator and are exploring it like it is a cold case science is exploring the natural world to understand it better and 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 how it came about Uh, you know there's no nothing in my mind uh, that would scare me of anyone studying the sciences uh, because I think ultimately you get to the point where there's a gap and you go, well, that gap can only be filled by a creator. That's right. Um, I'm actually more scared by um, uh, by some uh, Christians who only read the Bible and nothing else. Right. Uh, well, look, look this way. There's, there's ways of one. Uh, these two things inform each other. Clearly, they're, they're never going to contradict each other if the God of the universe that we know is true is true. So when we hear expressions like the God is the, uh, Jesus is the author of life. That's an expression. I, I think it is probably just an expression that kind of, kind of conveys the message. But when you start to learn about the origin of life and what's required genetically from a DNA perspective before we can even consider how life might originate in the universe, well, then you start looking at the code of the, G, the DNA and realizing that, that, that all codes require coders. Hmm. In other words, all codes require authors. And then you start to, well, how is it that God creates? When, when this now this expression comes to life for me now it may not be that this is at all what was intended by the author of the gospels or the author of the letters but what's interesting is that one exploration of the sciences helps me to live differently as i'm studying the special revelation of scripture so we've talked uh, about the fuse and we mm-hmm. talked about the fallout um, is there anything else in the book that for you um, is just really central to us understanding the person of Jesus and understanding his historical context? Yeah, let me I'll offer one last thing about this. And then I want to ask you a question, okay? Because <laughs> your context is a little bit different than ours here. And, you know, it's, even, in, even in the United States, you know, state to state, the context mm-hmm. is different. But, but so I would say this, um, what's so powerful for me as I looked at this is that the, how do I explain how this guy, and I even have a list of all of the important people, significant historical figures of the first century globally, right? So, so, so if you look at those figures globally, so they all live about the same time as Jesus. Hmm. None of them, I mean, all of them combined did not have this kind of impact on, on human history. Most of these names you would say, I'm not even sure who that is, but because they had no impact. You might recognize some of them, but a lot of the people you recognize because of their interaction with Christians, with the Christian story. So you recognize these names. 
Otherwise, you wouldn't even recognize those names. So how is it? These are leaders of empires. These are leaders, military leaders. These are authors and poets and concert writers or music writers or just, you know, whatever they may be. Mm. Historically, if you look at all of them going through all of the common era, how is it that this guy, this little Jewish sage, it's not like he's the only ancient thinker who said wise things. How is it that this guy has so impacted literature, art, music, education, science, and world religions? By the way, all world religions make room for Jesus. Even Buddhists today, Buddhism preceded Jesus. Hinduism preceded Jesus. Well, they all have modified, emerged, or mentioned Jesus in some way. They want to adopt him. He's an enlightened teacher who they value highly, who was on his way to Buddhahood. There's a place for Jesus within Buddhism. Yet Jesus comes in after all of those things and says, mm, sorry, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Yeah. He doesn't return the favor. Everybody else eventually acknowledges Jesus. Jesus never returns the favor because he, he knows you can't do that and, and stay true to what's true. Mm. Now, so what's interesting to me is how Jesus, who he was, having been born in a nowhere town, raised in another nowhere town, never traveled more than about 200 miles, no family, no kids to have a legacy, no you know, kind of a robust education or privileged position, never led an army, never ruled a nation, never wrote a concert, never wrote a book. This is the guy who was rejected by pretty much everyone who was in power or religious. And the people who did say they loved him, abandoned him or denied him at some point. Then he's falsely executed, humiliated, and had to borrow a grave. Okay, this is the guy who we base, this is the guy who had the biggest impact of any historical figure in the history of historical figures. How do we explain that? Mm. And that's where I look at this. And I think I just, at the end of it, want, I, I, I couldn't help but be in awe, mm. the kind of appropriate reverent awe you would have of God. Mm. And that's why I think that studying this kind of case is so important. It's not because I'm interested in the in the academic experience. Yeah. I'm not interested in the exercise. I'm interested in how, what the result is. And the result for me is not just a head knowledge of who Jesus is, but it's this sense of, wow. Yeah. And, and so here's my question for you. And this is my concern yep. about all of us kind of going forward because we all think about how we're going to go forward in, in our own lives. You know, my fear is, does anybody care? Mm. about what is objectively true mm. anymore at all mm. either objectively true about history or is, is it all now just a matter of personal subjective lived experience because if that's the case now i can tell you that one of the things I, i've been looking at and watching carefully because i'm still involved in several cases that are active is are, is this happening in criminal courtrooms no, it turns out that we've had a couple recently where you would think, well, maybe the public opinion has shifted and the verdict is going to reflect really more of a public opinion about the issue than it is the facts in the case. But so far, what I'm seeing is that the courtroom is still the place where the objective reality about the facts leads to certain inferences. And it's not like you've got 12 jurors and 12 subjective opinions. No, they are still willing to bend their knee to an objective reality, even if subjectively they don't like it. Yeah. So I'm still seeing that in courtrooms. It might be the one last place where objective truth reigns. But I'm wondering, we all act as though everything's a matter of subjective opinion. But of course, there are several places in our lives where we, we, we know we can't act that way. Mm. My opinion is not going to change which bus route or which train route is going to get me someplace. There's an objective reality about the train route I'm going to have to bend my knee to, mm. even though I might not like it. 
So I guess that's my question for you. What are you seeing in culture? Is it going to be harder for us? In other words, for me as a modernist, right? I'm an old guy. <laughs> so, so I, I mean, I was working in the arts in the eighties when postmodernism was the form of art that was being expressed in architecture. That movement, the postmodern movement in architecture was very robust in the mid eighties. Um, here we are look at look, kind of living it culturally in terms of truth claims. Now arts are always the head of, of culture anyway. So my question for you is, do you see, um, I mean, what, what, what is your yeah. experience been? Well, Mike, so I'm a, a 65% Bengali Muslim neighborhood. I'm surrounded by Muslims. I'm also surrounded by young professionals. So let's just look at these two different groups. So firstly, we look at Muslims. How do they approach me when I approach them? So we were out today knocking on doors and we just talked to people and um, sometimes we you know, might pray for a healing and sometimes we might share the gospel with them, depending on what's appropriate. What I find really interesting with them is they have been told certain things about Christianity that are just outright not true. For example, the Gospels have changed over time. They have changed. What you now have, Christian, is not what once was. So what you believe about Jesus is a corruption. And if you say to them, look, can I look at the evidence uh, with you on that? Can we actually sit down and look at the manuscripts that were around very, you know, the earliest manuscripts that we have and what we have now and actually how um, they prove to us that the scriptures, the, the gospels that we have are good accounts. Uh, they're not interested because uh, they've been told by somebody who is trustworthy in their mind. So uh, truth for them is not that important. Uh, the truth is what has come out of their imam's mouth and anything different from that, they are just not interested. There's, so there's uh, uh, no flexibility in there. In fact, I, the conversation I had yesterday with a colleague of mine uh, from church was how willing am I to re-ask the questions and change my mind on Jesus Christ? Would I be willing to re-look at the evidence and to genuinely ask myself, am I still following the right deity? Am I still following uh, the right savior? Um, and so that's an interesting question. Am I willing to say, uh, I would say in my Bengali Muslim neighborhood, uh, truth is what's come out of the Imam's mouth, not actually what may be historically true. And then when I talk to my young professionals, uh, my truth may not be your truth, but we'll just agree to disagree. And we say, well, what is your truth? And it's more about feelings and emotions than it is about yeah. facts. And I think yeah. that's what's really scary uh, is for many people uh, as they approach uh, God, faith of any kind, what feels good, what feels right is more important to them than what is historically correct or what it has the most evidence or proof. So when mm -hmm. someone converts, so I recently uh, met someone who converted to Islam. So I said, you know, I presume then you looked at all the evidence and it, you know, they really hadn't done that. They weren't interested right. in that. They were going with something that felt good. Don't uh, you see this even in culture? Feelings lie to us. You know, we know yeah. our feelings and emotions lie. Yeah, right. Don't you see this also too in our, our desire to virtue signal on anything, right? So we, we, it, we know it makes us feel good. It makes us feel good even to cast a vote because it, we, we're, trying to, we're trying to make a statement about, even though this thing may not even improve the quality of the world, it may not factually even be accurate or it may not even have the kind of impact we, but if, if we can make us feel good, mm. 
we'll we'll do it. We'll 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 you know whatever it may be, whatever that thing may be. I, I don't want to get into the controversy right now uh, between mask and not masking, getting vaccinations. And I can I'm pretty much you know okay. I'll just tell you I'm, I'm vaccinated. I, I don't have a view that that is opposed to being vaccinated. Yeah. But I didn't get vaccinated because I thought it would be a virtue signal. In other words, that I would be representing a certain political side in the equation. Mm-hmm. Our agency was vaccinating all the police officers, you know, you know, when the first time started. So, so a lot of it, you know, I just wonder, are we at a place? Now, what's interesting, it seems to me like with the Muslim community you're talking to, they still believe there's an objective truth. They just think the, that the imam is the one telling them the truth about the objective claim. Mm. Uh, there's a claim about the Gospels. And it's not about based on my opinion or how it makes me feel. There's actually a truth about the Gospels. I just don't trust your authority. Mm. I trust the imam's authority. That's interesting. I think that's something that we can still... My bigger fear is, are we at a place where it doesn't really matter what's objectively... I mean, it's my perception that matters. Mm. It's my experience of it that matters. Yeah. And I just that if that's the case, it's going to change the way I think we present the Gospel, right? Like an old guy like me, who is a pretty committed evidentialist based on my mm. work, will still take an evidential view and come into the system that way. Here's what my fear is. Um, I, I know that, that, that there, unless there's some new evidence, I don't, once I've examined the evidence for a case mm. and I know he's my guy, I'm committed to that conclusion. Now mm. there's new evidence. I may, but I'm not going to ever like doubt. Okay. I've already looked at all that evidence. It gets an old claim. I looked at that back 20 years ago. So what I did as, as a guy who was investigating Christianity was I had to examine every claim, all of my skepticism, every claim against Christianity. There's nothing that anyone's going to level now I haven't heard. Mm-hmm. I haven't already examined or I haven't already come to a, a, a conclusion on an inference on it. So I don't experience the kind of, I mean, I may experience days where I'm bummed. I don't think the Christian worldview is serving me well, right? Or I'm not enjoying my life the way I might have, I could have just done whatever I wanted to do. But I don't struggle with doubt. Yeah, because I've already examined it. I don't go backward. Once I've examined a case, like jurors, you can't you can't live in, in it'll ruin your life. Mm-hmm. Run to the verdict based on everything you know at the time and move forward. And this is what I tried to do with this as well. And so that means that I could have a bad day. I still know it's true. I, I could have a day where I'm not feeling good about it. Yeah, I still know it's true though. And but I wonder if we're getting to a place where anyone kind of thinks of things this way, or if we're at a place where, no, it doesn't work for me today. Therefore I'm on to whatever does. Yeah. And forget the evidence. I remember yeah. I was um, 15, 16. My parents had uh, come to faith. I, my parents weren't Christians pre my baptism uh, as a baby. Uh, they came to faith at the local church and I kind of knocked around Christianity, went to the local church with them, but it wasn't until 15, 16 that I started reading the gospels for myself. And actually what the Jesus that I found in the Gospels was so compelling. I, I loved Jesus, but I didn't like Christianity. I wasn't sure about Christianity. And I remember thinking to myself, look, if this is true, the one event I can really look at here would be the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's right. So I ended up, uh, I remember I having a, a scrap of paper in my Bible. And every time I came up with a new piece of evidence for the resurrection or something came to mind about the resurrection, I would write that down. Because for me, that was the concrete moment where everything changed. You know, Jesus, without the resurrection, Jesus could be a good man, could be a moral teacher. But actually, the resurrection is where everything shifts. Yeah. Uh, And so I often come back to that. You know, I looked at the evidence and I've explored this and I came to a conclusion. 
uh, and I, I, I still uh, hold that evidence. I want to keep adding. I love it. I love it when I find something new. I never thought about that. That's great. I'll add that, I'll add that to my right, list. Right, right, right. Right. Uh, but wait, for me, wait. that was that was the moment. Was the resurrection and the evidence that I found I'm with for you. it. Yeah, I'm with you. That, that that for the same thing for me. So I, I always think that, and it was for Paul too. Paul says, "Look, if the resurrection isn't true, all this is in vain. We've been lying to you. You got no hope for your own resurrection. Got no hope for the future. Uh, and you've been Paul. You've been lied to by false witnesses who have been claiming something that wasn't true." What's so interesting to me is that 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 it, Jesus uses the resurrection as the catalyst for so much teaching. So you know that he he rises from the grave. Then he spends forty days with the disciples. What is he doing? Well, it turns out I think what he's doing is he is spending time showing them how the Old Testament prophecies predicted him. Because the very first teaching after those forty days is from Peter on Pentecost. And mm -hmm. what is he doing? He's probably repeating the teaching he just had for the last forty days with Jesus. But isn't it interesting that it wouldn't have made sense to talk about all of those prophecy predictions until you come out of the grave and now everything's like oh i okay now i get in other words if people who come out of the grave are pretty compelling you know it's like i have a tendency to believe people who come out of the grave because they have a different set of authority a different the, the, the authority of jesus now is far different on the back side of the resurrection than it so I, for me it was about the entire story comes down to if he rises from the grave He's something other than any other historical prophet or smart guy who ever lived. I think that's a great place for us to land. Jim, thank you so much. I've loved spending this little bit of time with you. And thank you for Person of Interest. Thank you for Case for Christ. Um, if anybody wanted to check out more of what you have been saying today, where should they head? Well, I've got a website called coldcasechristianity.com, and that's where we post three times a week. Um, and our book, the new book, Person of Interest, you can get it there. But uh, we've got, a, a, I hope, is a good teaching package. Like I don't write books so that I can just, you know, give you a book. I want you to teach the material to others. So if you go to personofinterestbook.com, you'll find that if you buy the book, you can get all of the teaching videos and you can see how we've been teaching it. You can get all the Bible inserts you can give to your class or your Sunday school class or your congregation. And there's a 525 slide animated, completely illustrated PowerPoint presentation that hopefully will help you teach the content of the book to others. Because what we're trying to do is to get a word out about Jesus that maybe people haven't been thinking about the impact of Jesus anymore, how, what the impact, what, how much we are indebted to Jesus and his yeah. followers. And that's our goal with this book. So I hope that'll be helpful. That's at personofinterestbook.com. Wonderful. Jim, thank you so much for spending your time with me. Thanks I for really having me. Appreciate I appreciate it. it. Yeah. Thank you. Grace and peace. You too.